You are listening to a sermon by Tanner Sherlock. Visit com for more info. Sermon's getting a little bit interesting because I feel like the Holy Spirit was telling me what I wrote isn't what he would like to share. So we're going to see how this goes. This topic's a little tough to talk about because I don't know why, but it is. And I feel like the Holy Spirit was talking about respect, issuing respect to God and to the Holy Spirit. Something that I've kind of come to find and come to know and and come to see with my walk with Christ is the Holy Spirit doesn't really talk to me if I'm disrespecting it. If I'm disrespecting the Holy Spirit, I usually can't hear what he's saying. If I'm disrespecting God, he seems distant. And I felt like tonight, I think as a whole, we need to remember when we come into this place, I know it's in a ballroom, we're not in a church, but we need to remember that a church is only a building. We are the church. And so when we gather with the purpose to focus on God, we need to come with a level of respect. We need to come with the intention that God is there. Come with the intention that we're going to serve God, we're going to look to God, we're going to learn something from God, we're going to grow in God. When we talk to the Holy Spirit, we need to have that level of respect to assume that he is there. We still have to respect him. For your brother and sister in Christ, who's sitting next to you and you come here, are you respecting them? Even if you're not getting anything out of the service, even if your intentions to come here aren't necessarily to grow in Christ, are you still having the respect for your brother and sister in Christ next to you so that when they come here, they can learn? Are you respecting your brother and sister in Christ because when they ask you to keep them accountable, are you actually doing it? Do you respect your brother and sister in Christ enough that when you ask them to keep you accountable, are you telling them the truth with what's going on in your life? I feel like as soon as, as soon as we walked in here, like I said, I felt like there was just that wall of just holding on to your burdens. And so when you come in here, are you coming in here with the intention to feel good about yourself? Or are you coming in here with the intention to learn about God and to grow in Christ? Because if you're coming in here just to feel good about yourself, I'm sorry, you're coming for the wrong reasons. And then as soon as we got that burden off of ourselves, as soon as we took it to Christ and we laid it down at his feet, it just felt like the Holy Spirit's presence just, boom, came in here. And I felt like the Holy Spirit told me, the reason why I wasn't showing up was because I wasn't receiving any respect. And that comes from myself too. So when we come in here, and I'll get to my sermon in here in just a minute, but <clears throat> when we come in here, from now on, I think that it would do us a service to come in here with the intention to show respect to the Holy Spirit. And then when you go home and you're spending that quiet time with God, instead of just assuming that you need to go to prayer in order to fix your life, go into prayer with the respect that God is the God of the universe. His will is more important than mine. And so when I go into his presence, I need to respect that. His will is more important than me standing up here and giving a service, giving a sermon, if I'm not listening to him. What good is it for me to stand up here and give a sermon if I haven't consoled him, if I haven't sought him out, if I haven't tried to line up the sermon with his will, what good is it? And so God's will is more important than my ability to speak a good word. The Holy Spirit is more important than my ability to give you something that's just going to tickle your ears and you're going to leave here feeling absolutely phenomenal and amazing. If that phenomenal and amazing thing isn't coming from God, then you might as well throw it away. If it's not joy from the Lord, it is worthless. If it's a false sense of happiness, it is completely worthless in your life. So my service, or my sermon, was supposed to be a little lighthearted. I was going to talk about... How the Broncos won the Super Bowl, and uh, how I hope Pastor Grant listens to my sermons because he would feel bad about himself because he likes the Chiefs, and he didn't respect the Broncos. But while reading scripture lately, I've been kind of noticing a theme. I was reading in Acts 23 through 
want to say 28-ish. And during this, uh, Paul is sharing the gospel with the Jews around the area and anywhere from Jerusalem to, I mean, he's spreading it to the predominant Jew population at this point in time. Just kind of give you a background. And everywhere he goes to share about the gospel with Jesus Christ, he's met with riots and and uh, the Jewish population rising up against him, throwing him in jail, wanting to kill him. And it caused me to start thinking, you know, why in the world were the Jews so blind? I mean, today you could look back and you could say, well, it happened so long ago. The evidence of it is long gone. The, the ruins of what happened, time has destroyed. You know, the, the book, you could say, has been corrupted because it's been 2,000 years worth of translations. I mean, you can make a, a, an argument if you really wanted to try. You could come up with something. But back then, there really was no argument because Jesus Christ had just died within their lifetime. And yet they still came up against him. They didn't stop and go, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to go do some research. I'm going to figure some things out on my own. No, they just assumed that what Paul was coming to them with was blasphemy. They didn't really take the time. They didn't really take the effort to look into it. Because the evidence would have been right there, right in front of them. So what led them to be so blind? So... We're going to be in Acts 24. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. And just go ahead and stay in Acts 24 because I read a lot of scripture today. Starting Acts 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea. Caesarea. There we go. Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they bought their char- brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Verse 2. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought out reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to worry worry you further, weary you further, I will request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him by examining him yourself. You will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. It's quite the case against him, isn't it? Going around, stirring up riots, destroying temples. Cool, they've got a lot of evidence against him. However, the problem is, the only evidence that is true was the riots, and the riots were being caused because the Jews were coming against him, not because he was stirring up riots. All he was doing was going around sharing about Jesus Christ. And so the riots were completely on the Jews' part. How hard would it have been for them to say, you're an idiot, turn around and walk away? But instead, they started riots. In chapter 5, later on, they would even go as far as to set up an ambush for him. He's been arrested here, and in, verse, or in chapter 25, they try to set up an ambush. They try to, to set up this little deal where they would bring him to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, they would have an ambush there ready to kill him. So they were will, willing to go as far to not only lie about him, to put up this case against him, but they were even willing to go as far as to break a command that God had given them to not murder. They were willing to kill him. To shut him up. Why were the Jews so blind to what Jesus had done to get to the point where they were even willing to go against what God had taught, the principles God had taught early on in their religion? They were willing to go against that just to shut this guy up who's sharing about Jesus Christ. How many of you guys like bowling? I love bowling. I used to bowl quite a bit when I was younger. When I first started bowling, my mom had taught me quite a few things because my mom bowled in a league for a while. And so when I first started bowling, I brought a friend along with me, and we joined the league. 
and we start bowling, and we're terrible. But my friend's just a little bit better than I am. However, I noticed that his form, and I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but his form is abysmal. And so I pull him aside, I'm like, hey, your form's terrible. Here's some things that my mom taught me about how to throw the ball down the lane in order to, to, to do it the right way. And I spend about five minutes teaching him, and I get done, and he stops, he looks at me, he says, but I'm beating you. Why would I want to go to your form? I'm beating you. I was like, all right, whatever. And so we keep bowling, and then eventually one of the, the leaders comes along and uh, comes up to him and says, hey, your form is horrible. And she spends about five minutes telling him literally everything I had just got done telling him. And I'm sitting there with this smug look on my face like, ha, yeah. You know that look when, you know, the Broncos win the Super Bowl and you see a Chiefs fan and you just look at them like, you know. You know what happened. That same look. But he gets done. He walks up, grabs his ball, and throws it the exact same way he's been throwing it. I was like, dude, what are you doing? You heard her just come and tell you that your form is horrible for like five minutes. Told you everything I told you. And he's like, yeah, it makes sense, but I'm beating you. And you're using the form she's saying. So obviously... If I keep my form, I'm going to get better and better, and you're always going to be behind me because I'm better than you. My form has to be better because I'm beating you. I was like, all right, whatever you say. And as time went on, eventually, because I was kind of doing what the instructors were telling me to do, and I was growing in my form, eventually I got pretty good. And I got to the point where, as a young kid, I had won a couple tournaments. And so... My friend, however, was still just as good as he was day one, maybe just a tiny bit better. But he stuck to that form through and through. He refused to change because after time it grew to this thing where he just had to prove himself right because he wasn't willing to listen to anybody else. And he got to the point where he just hated bowling. And so eventually he just quit. And when he quit, he was literally just as good as he was in the beginning. And he held on to that crappy, terrible form all the way to the bitter end, no matter how much people tried to tell him to change his form. And if you want to chalk up this story, you can kind of wrap your mind around why the Jews would behave the same way as my friend would. And I think you can probably come up with a word in your head right now as to what that would be. But I can tell you that people back 2,000 years ago were guilty of the same thing as we can be guilty of today, pretty easily. Continuing verse 12. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up, and this is Paul speaking, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance to the law, and that is, and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves ha- that, or that, excuse me. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonial clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you to bring the charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So we can see clearly here, Paul paints a pretty good picture that, as we alluded to before, the entire reason that the Jews were creating this case against him was because 
he was sharing in the temple courts about Jesus Christ. He was sharing that Jesus Christ had died and had risen again and that he was the sacrifice that would cover their sins. He was sharing what we know about Jesus Christ. So why were they so angry at Paul for teaching about Jesus Christ? Why was my friend so unwilling to change after he realized he was wrong? Why are Americans today so offended by Jesus Christ and God? Because for some reason, we have this pride about us. We have this pride about us, including the word change. When we think of change, we think our environment needs to change. Our circumstances need to change. We think that we need more money. If I could just have a little bit more money, my life would be happy. If I could have this car, my life would be happy. If I could have this dream job, my life would be perfect. If I could have this career, everything in life would be perfect. When we think of change, we think of our circumstances of changing. However, we don't necessarily think of ourselves that need to change. If money can fix your problems, there's something more wrong with you than your circumstances. And so like us, the Jews 2,000 years ago didn't like change. They didn't like unexpected things. How do I know that this case wasn't just a select example, or maybe it was just the Jews, or maybe it was just us that are unteachable? If you continue in verse 24, Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, Porcius, Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant him a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So even though Paul brought to him his faith, he brought to him the story about Jesus Christ, he brought to him the truth. He still wasn't willing to allow Paul to go. And instead, what he was seeking was a measly bribe. He was wanting a handout. And Paul, as we now know, gave him something a million times better than a handout. But yet, he was still unwilling to listen. And he still continued to send for Paul because he still was continuing to hold out for a bribe. And then in the end... He granted a favor to the Jews and left Paul in prison. We know he didn't take to heart what Paul was really saying simply for the fact that he left Paul in prison. A couple weeks ago, I was teaching on how we can't fully trust our own feelings and how our own sin and our own selfishness and our own pride plays into our feelings. And so you can't necessarily trust your feelings 100% to guide you in your walk. You have to come back to a compass. You have to come back to the Bible in order to guide you. And the reason why we can't trust our, our uh, feelings is because of sin in our lives, sin that's been there for a long time because there's an inerrant attribute to the human race that wants to think that we are perfect, wants to think that everything about us is perfectly fine. Everything in our lives is 100% perfect. It's just our circumstances that are the flaw, not necessarily. I say that with a tongue-in-cheek kind of comment because all of us here, we know we're not perfect. How many of you guys know you're not perfect? But for some reason, we act like we are. We act like everything about us is perfect. It's so stupid because we know we're not perfect. Yet we're so easy to to act like it. Last week I talked about listening to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you. If what you're doing and what you're being guided by isn't changing you, 
if you're not applying it to your life, if you're not allowing it to get deeper than surface value, then anything and everything that the Holy Spirit can teach you is completely pointless. If you're not willing to allow it to apply to your life, if you're not willing to let it to soak in, if you're not willing to let it actually guide you, then there's nothing that the Holy Spirit, there's nothing that God, there's nothing that I, there's nothing that the small group leaders, there's nothing my wife, there's nothing the Pope can teach you that will benefit you if you don't allow it to change you. If you don't remain teachable. There's nothing in the world the greatest teacher on earth can teach you if you aren't, in return, teachable. It's kind of like knowing a cure for cancer. You've done the research. You've done the the work that it takes, and you come up with this cure for cancer, and this cure for cancer is 100% perfect. Every, Every single specimen that it's ever been tested on, every human, every animal, every rat that's been tested on, 100% cures cancer for the entirety of the rest of their life. You've found the cure for cancer. But instead of actually going through the work to get it patented and get it sent out and, and get it replicated and get it put in hospitals, you just put it in your back pocket for a rainy day or just in case you get cancer. So knowing the cure for cancer is completely pointless if we don't allow it to be applied. It works the same way when you come in here, when you go to church. Hearing the greatest sermon that I could possibly create, the greatest sermon that the Holy Spirit could create, the greatest sermon that Jesus Christ himself could create is 100% pointless if it isn't actually applied to your life. See, if you come in here and you hear a sermon and and it inspires you to, to throw off the baggage from your life. It inspires you to, to go past all the crap that's in your past. It inspires you to make a change, to grow into a new person, get closer to God. It inspires you. And it, you, know, you know the sermon I'm talking about, that sermon you leave and you're just, you're ready, you're pumped. It's good and all. It's going to make you feel good for the rest of the night maybe. But if you wake up the next day and you don't reapply that sermon to your life, if you don't reapply what God was speaking to you to your life, tomorrow's going to suck just as bad as yesterday did then. Every single day is a new day. And what I'm saying is every single day we have to remain diligent and we have to remain teachable. So now, I know that I'm guilty of this too. I mean, there's been many times where I'll write my sermon out and I'll let Courtney read it and she'll be like, hey, this part of your sermon just doesn't make any sense. And immediately I'll get defensive and be like, what do you mean it doesn't make sense? It makes perfect sense. And then I go and I look at it and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I'm like, hey, I'm sorry that I was being a jerk. But if I would just remain teachable in even that moment, in that circumstance, it would be so much easier if she's like, hey, this part's really confusing. You might want to look at it. Oh, is it? All right, I'll take a check. Oh, hey, that is confusing. What do you think it should say? I think this would be good. Okay, cool. Moving on. So don't think that I'm not accepting guilt in this too. But is your faith really real to you if you can just simply disregard it? Is your faith in Jesus Christ and serving him and being more like him, is it really real if you can simply disregard it and stay exactly the same as you are? For example, two years ago, as a Denver Broncos fan, there was an infamous Super Bowl in which us Bronco fans don't really like to remember. It's a sore subject. But now that we won, I can finally talk about it a little bit, but it's still a little bitter. But two years ago, we went into the Super Bowl. It's the number one offense. We were unstoppable. We were phenomenal. Our offense was amazing. Seattle, on the other hand, had the number one defense. But all the announcers, everybody was saying their defense can't stop Denver's offense. This is going to be a blowout. Denver will win this hands down. And then Seattle's defense taught us a lesson on what defenses can do to a number one offense. And it was embarrassing. And Denver got blown out, and it went down as one of the biggest losses in Super Bowl history. Now... Denver could have then 
taken that and been like, you know, that's just circumstantial. You know, if that snap hadn't gone over his shoulder, the whole game would have been different. If, you know, Peyton Manning hadn't choked, the game would have been different. If our offensive line could have blocked, game would have been different. And just keep doing what they've been doing and having an amazing offense. Or instead, they could go out that offseason and pick up the number one defensive rated free agent. The very next season, pick up the number three rated defensive free agent. And the next two subsequent drafts, draft defensive players with their very first draft pick and try to change their defense into being better. Luckily for Denver Broncos fans, they learned, they adapted, they created the number one defense. And then this year, we went into the Super Bowl and everybody was saying that Carolina's offense was too good. Denver's defense couldn't hold them back. I remembered everything that was being said about the Broncos two years ago, and the entire time I'm thinking, yeah, you said that two years ago, and look what happened to us. And then this year, sure enough, Denver dabbed on the Panthers and humiliated them. And you got to forgive me, my favorite team won the Super Bowl. I'm going to talk about it. But the lesson that I'm talking about is, is true. I, I want you to actually think about the lesson. And I know I'm, I'm being kind of lighthearted, but, but really think about it. That is actually what happened. The Denver Broncos went in and got annihilated because of the number one defense. And so in return, within two years, they decided they were going to 100% focus on defense and completely rebuilt their defense to be the number one defense. They went in and won a Super Bowl. They learned from their mistakes. They were teachable. What we have to do is we have to take that same principle and apply it to our lives. We have to remember to be teachable. In the most humiliating moments of our life, we have to remember to be teachable. In the most glorious, amazing moments of our life, we still have to remember to be teachable. Because what good is the lessons that life brings us if we don't allow it to actually teach us something? See, the Jews back then... The reason why they were so unwilling to listen to Jesus Christ as a Messiah was because they were believing that their Messiah was going to be more like a king who was going to come in and he was going to bring all the Jewish people back and he was going to create a Jewish kingdom and that kingdom was going to annihilate anybody and everybody around them and they would be the dominant kingdom in the world that would reign forever. See, they were holding out for a conqueror that would conquer the earth for them to establish their kingdom. But what Jesus brought was something else that conquered the earth. And as we now know 2,000 years later, it was significantly better than establishing a kingdom on earth. However, at that time, I could understand why having a king come and bring your people out of slavery, bring them back, put them into their own country again, establish a powerful nation, why that would be appealing. As Americans, I know why living in America is appealing. When you've got countries that can't afford to feed, feed themselves, where they get by on half of a meal a day, they drink nasty, dirty water, they earn an average of $2 a day, $2 a week. In some nations, they earn $2 a month. I can see why living in a country like America would be so ideal, would, would be so appealing. And if you look at the, the Jews from 2,000 years ago, they were being promised, they thought they were being promised that kind of a scenario. They were being promised going from a third world country, earning $2, however, you know, $2 a month, to living in America. But it was even bigger than that. I could see why they would be holding out for something like that. They weren't willing to take a step back and say, hey, you know what, maybe everything that we thought about the kingdom that God was wanting to create on this earth We're looking at it a little too selfishly, and maybe the kingdom God wanted to establish on this earth is going to actually apply to all nations and to all people. But instead, they wanted it to only apply to them. Instead, they wanted it to be a king that would conquer for them. They weren't willing to take a step back and say, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Let's take a look at these scriptures. Let's see if we can apply it to it. Because now, like I said, 2,000 years later, we can go back and look in the Old Testament and be like, yeah, that lines up perfectly with the story of Jesus Christ. Go to another chapter. Yeah, that lines up perfectly with the story of Jesus Christ. How could you deny it? And the reason that they could deny it was because they weren't willing to go and look and apply it. 
They weren't willing to take a step back and say, hey, I need to be teachable in this moment. Let's actually look and see. Because I really believe if they had taken that step back and actually looked at it and actually tried to figure it out, that they'd have come to the same conclusion that Paul did. But that's the thing. When we look at Paul's life, Paul was holding out for that same thing too. Paul was formerly known as Saul. He was going around murdering, killing, destroying the Jews, putting them in prison for anything and everything, coming up with whatever, saying that they were blaspheming God with their story of Jesus Christ. And it took God himself, or, well, actually it was a, Jesus came down and blinded him. But anyway, it took a supernatural act for him to even get the picture. And this is Paul who goes on to write most of the New Testament. Yeah, even for him, it took a supernatural act. It took somebody going, hey, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my people? And even Paul, at that point in time when he was blinded, he had two options that he could have done. He could have done exactly what he did and believe that Jesus Christ really was the Savior, believe that what his people were teaching, or he could continue going on being blind and persecuting the Christians. Sometimes the, the thing that comes before us that's trying to teach us is a little more powerful than other moments. I really believe that Paul, if he'd have accepted Christ, had actually taken to heart what Jesus was teaching while he was on earth, the whole situation and where he needed to be blinded wouldn't have happened. And he still would have gone on to write the majority of the New Testament. And I think we can fall into that same trap. We don't want things to change. We want things to stay the same for some reason, for better or worse. We're more willing to come into church and try to cover up what we're struggling with and try to appear perfect than coming in with a broken heart and saying, you know what, something needs to change. We're more willing to come in and just appear like everything in our lives is perfect than to come in and be willing and be vulnerable and be broken and allow God to work in our lives. Because sometimes when we come into church, we come in and there's this thing that happens with brand new people who, who've come into church for the very first time ever. What can happen is they can come in, hear what God's saying, even if they're feeling convicted about it, they can hear what God's saying and you go, you know what, that is 100% true. That is something in my life that I don't like. That's something in my life I want to change. I want to know more about this God because this God says that I can change. This God says that he can change me, that he can help me change. He can help me grow. I want that. Or they'll come in and they'll hear what the pastor's saying and then they'll blame the pastor for judging them. And say, he's, he's judging me. He's convicting me. He's trying to make me feel guilty about my life. He's such a hypocrite. What's wrong with him? I know he struggles with stuff. He's such a hypocrite. I know he struggles with this exact same thing. He talks about it in his, in his testimony. And they can begin to redirect it to something else so that they can feel better about themselves. It happens with people who have been going to church their entire lives, too. Maybe the sermons are starting to be a little bit, little bit, cutting a little bit deeper than they were before. The sermons are getting a little more powerful, a little more convicting. There's a certain struggle that I'm, I'm really not willing to get rid of. And so instead of allowing, them to, allowing ourselves to be taught and allowing ourselves to change, we then skip to a different church because that other church is going to make us feel good about ourselves. And now I want to get across a very important point. I'm not saying that God's not going to comfort you. I'm not saying God's not going to be a source of joy, and I'm not saying that God's not going to be this stuff, because he is in our lives. He so is in our lives. But what I'm saying is, if your God doesn't challenge you to grow out of the struggles that you're caught in, if your God isn't trying to grow you, to help you out, what God are you really serving? If he isn't challenging you to grow out of your struggles you're caught up in, then is he really actually helping you at all? When you go out and you're, you know, when you're fooling around with a pocket knife and you just accidentally cut yourself. How many of you guys know what happens? You got a really sharp knife and you're just not even thinking and you just cut right through whatever you're cutting through. I've got a pretty nasty scar right here because of that. Because I bought a brand new knife and I didn't realize it was already sharp. Now, if when you cut yourself, 
if you got a bunch of dirt and grime and, and nastiness in there, is throwing a Band-Aid over it really going to do any good? No, because a week later, it's going to be nasty and infected. It's going to be disgusting. So then now that it's nasty and infected, if you take a bigger Band-Aid and put it over it, is it going to do any good? Not at all. It's just going to get even more infected. It's going to get even worse. It's going to grow. It's going to go to the point where, you know, maybe gangrene will set in and eventually you'll lose your entire finger. Crazy, but it happens. It does happen. Maybe you'll get lucky and it goes away on its own. But if you take that cut and it's all nasty and jacked up and you actually clean it with something and you get the nastiness out and you clean it and then you put a Band-Aid on it, you're setting it up to heal way better. But the thing is, the, 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 the things that we put in it to clean it sting a little bit sometimes, don't they? So it might hurt a little bit, but you know it's for your own good. See, and we can apply teachings from a pulpit the same way. Sometimes they might sting a little bit. Sometimes what the Holy Spirit's wanting to work with us, wanting us to change, it might hurt a little bit, it might sting. But we've got to get the crap and the garbage out of our lives so that God can even be the band-aid that heals us. And the best part about this entire sermon is that there is not a single person in here, including myself, that this doesn't apply to. Every single one of us needs to remember at all times to be teachable, to be able to be taught. Because I don't care if your entire life you've been teachable. If today you decide you're not going to be teachable, then this is a sermon you need to hear. But so even me standing up here in front of you as the pastor, I'm saying that this sermon speaks to me every single solitary day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't need to be teachable. If you walked in here and you've never even given your life to Christ, the most important thing you can do is be teachable and learn about Christ and give your life over to him and submit to him. We all have room to improve in our walk with Christ. And we will always have room to improve with our walk with Christ. I mean, when we die and we go to heaven and we're learning about God, we will learn about God for eternity and still not know everything there is to know about God. There is always going to be room in your life to be teachable. There is always going to be room in your life to learn something and your walk with Christ. I mean, this can apply even outside of Christianity. This can just apply to, to science. We need to remain teachable. And in our walk with Christ, it's one of the most important things that we need to be. See, and in this entire story, I want you to get out of this is that I'm telling you, we need to be a little bit more like Paul. We need to be a little bit more like the troublemaker. And we need to be a little less, a lot less like the rioters. We need to be a lot less like the Jews of the time. See, we need to be willing to share the gospel. We need to be willing to share Christ no matter the cost. If someone were to charge you with, your, with sharing your faith, I'm going to start over. If someone were to charge you with sharing your faith and sharing about Jesus Christ, would they find any evidence against you? If someone were to charge you with sharing your faith today because of actions you did today with sharing the gospel and sharing about Jesus Christ, would they find any evidence against you today? And so what I'm getting at is every single day is its own worry. It's its own entity. It is its own thing. And the scriptures tell us many times we need to focus on today to stop worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow has challenges of itself. Yesterday is gone. We need to focus on today. And so when we're trying to think about being teachable, we need to remember every single solitary day to be teachable and to grow in that. And we will always need to remember every single day to be teachable. How many of you guys have, have met some of those Christians that they've been Christians for like 50 years and they're amazing, phenomenal people and they know God and you know they know God so well, but sometimes they're just a little bit bitter and a little bit angry and a little bit mean. Don't deceive yourself and think that your, your, your actions you did yesterday are still going to help you out in your walk today. I'm not saying that they won't, don't get me wrong, but what I'm saying is, your focus should be on today. If you read the Bible all week and you prayed all week and you spent time with God all week, but you didn't today, today's probably going to suck a little bit more than it did last week. We can get this false sense of, of high. I mean, it happens with the, the people go to salt every single year. When we go to salt, we come back and we're on this spiritual high and we ride that high all the way into the ground. 
And then once we've finally gotten to the ground, we'll finally hit rock bottom again. Then we're like, oh, yeah, I haven't been reading my Bible. I've been slowly taking time away from that because I've been feeling so good about myself. I've been feeling so good about my day. See, in order to be more like Paul, we have to remember that he was at a point in time where he was condemning, he was imprisoning, he was murdering Christians just like the Jews were. But the difference was he was presented the gospel in a, just call it a unique way. It doesn't matter how unique it was. He allowed that gospel to be him. He was teachable in that moment. See, and every single day, there's new challenges of themselves. There's, there's new challenges every single day. And, and every single day, we might be presented with opportunities that might blind us, just like Paul was. We might be presented with opportunities that just feel like they're kicking you while you're down. Just feels like you're in over your head. How we deal with those things that blind us. How we deal with those things that set us back. How we look at those things in life that happen can determine whether or not we continue going on blind or whether we are set free from it. We need to ask ourselves every single day, am I being teachable? We need to ask ourselves every day, am I willing to get past my own pride in order to go, in order to grow closer to Christ? See, I want this this sermon, even though it might be hard to hear, I want it to encourage you more than anything else. I want it to encourage you. Because if you get anything out of what I'm saying today, I want you to get out of it that I don't want you to be, I don't want you to think, I don't want you to pretend like you're perfect. You don't have to be perfect in here. You're allowed to be broken. You're allowed to struggle. You're allowed to screw up. You might still have to deal with, you know, if if you screw up with the law, you're still going to have to deal with your sentence. But I'm saying, and I've said it a million times before, I don't need Christians to come in here who are perfect. I need you to come in here and be broken. I need you to come in here and be teachable. And more than anything else, I need you to be that every single day. Because if we can be teachable, we can grow. If we can be teachable and broken, we can be put back together the way that God wants to put us back together. If we are teachable, we can become more like what Christ wants us to be, more like what the Holy Spirit is, cha- uh, is shaping us to be. We can be more like Jesus Christ himself. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I can be Jesus, but I want to emulate my life and I want to look like him. I want to be like him. I want to smell like him. So every single day, I want you to ask yourself these questions because, well, not ask yourself these questions, but you can apply this to, to see whether or not you're teachable. You know you're teachable if when people give you input, or, or sorry, can't. You know you're teachable when people give you input. As in, are people willing to help you out? Are people willing to step in? Are people willing to step in and suggest things because they know you won't bite their head off? You know you're teachable when you see measurable growth and character development in yourself. Now, that development might be over a semester, might be over a year, it might be over a few years. But if you can look back and say, last year, I was not as close to God as I am right now, then you're being teachable, and we want to pursue after that. You know you're being teachable when you don't have to answer a critic with a defense. If someone critiques you, do you immediately respond with, yeah, but if you understood where I was coming from, if you understood what I was doing, you'd get what, I, what, what the reason was. And along the same lines, you know you're teachable when you don't have to criticize somebody back. If somebody criticizes you, whether it's a Christian or not, if somebody criticizes you, do you immediately look at something that is wrong with them in order to bring them down? If it's a Christian and they say, hey, man, I see that you're struggling with this area. Man, you need to fix it. Do you immediately retaliate with something that they're screwing up with? Or are you willing to listen to what they're saying? And that, like I said, that applies to both Christians and non-Christians who might criticize you. You know you're teachable when you're learning new ways to grow. And that means if you've noticed the people around you have been telling you the exact same thing over and over and over and over again, you're probably not being teachable. If you're struggling with the same thing over and over again, and people are telling you the exact same way to deal with it, over and over again, 
perhaps you're not being teachable. And maybe you're not being teachable in a completely different area that doesn't seem like it even applies to this. But you'd be surprised how one thing over here can actually completely affect something way out in right field over here with your walk with Christ and in your personal life and in your classes and in your schoolwork. Something you never even would have thought of can be what's actually causing you to stumble over and over again. And like I said before, the best part about this sermon, the number one thing that I like the most about it is, if you're feeling guilty about anything, I can promise you every single person in this room is sitting there with you feeling the same way. Because we've all screwed up this way. We've all had moments in our life, we've all had these instances where we were not teachable. Where when somebody criticized us, we criticized right back. When somebody spoke ill about us, we came up with a really good defense of why we did it. Every single one of us is guilty of it in here, including myself. And maybe every single one of us is probably guilty of it on some level, even today. And I'm talking about extremes here with these, you'll know you're teachable if. But if we're not careful, careful, even just a little bit of unteachability, of stubbornness, of pride, can grow over time. And the other thing that's awesome about this sermon is it doesn't matter how many times you've failed. It doesn't matter how many times you've screwed up. It doesn't matter what sin you're struggling with. It doesn't matter what you've come out of. We can apply it to our life. We can be teachable. We can grow in Christ. We can accept the salvation that Christ has given us. We can accept the freedom that God has given us. We can accept the cleanliness that God has given us no matter what you're coming out of and no matter what you've screwed up in. And we can then apply our screw-ups, our crap in our past we don't want to remember. We can apply it and learn from it and be teachable every single day. See, now isn't it amazing that God wants the best for us? That God doesn't necessarily want us to continue to keep struggling with the things we're struggling with? Those things in our life that are just frustrating? Isn't it cool that God doesn't want us to continue struggling with him? Isn't it cool that God sent down Jesus Christ to die and to, so that we didn't have to come in here with any baggage? Isn't it cool that God gives us a way in which he can actually help us to become better versions of ourselves? Man, if you guys knew me, I don't know, I think my wife, yeah, my wife is the only person in here who knew me before I was a Christian, which that's probably a good thing. Because for real, if you knew who I was, if you knew the kind of person I was before I had given my life to Christ, you would be blown away that I'm standing up here talking about being teachable. I was, I was the most prideful of them all. I was the most stubborn of them all. I, I screwed up daily. I, mean, I still screw up daily, don't get me wrong. But through my walk with Christ, something that's always been on the forefront of my mind has always been, am I being teachable? And I'm not saying that I've remembered it every single day. There's been a lot of days where the last thing I wanted to hear was, are you being teachable? Even for myself. But the model of my walk with Christ has always been, is there an area I need to grow in? Is there a sin I need to get out of my life? Is there a, a struggle that I need to get past? Is there an issue here that is preventing me from sharing the gospel? And early on, the number one thing that it took I mean, I still struggle with pride, don't get me wrong, but the number one thing that took a very long time to get me to a, a manageable level was my over-needed, or not over-needed, my, my over-abundant pride, which tried to make me, I tried to make myself appear to be this absolutely perfect bragging kind of person. I would brag about literally everything. If anybody told me I was wrong or anybody told me that there was something incorrect, I would immediately lash out at them. And so within my walk, the number one most important thing has always been, am I teachable? Because the number one thing that gets pride out of our lives is being teachable. Because you have to get past the point of assuming that you're always right. You have to get past the point of assuming that you're perfect. You have to get past the point of assuming that, that everything that you're doing in your life is the perfect thing that you could possibly do to apply it. And you have to say, hey, I'm going to take a step back. There's got to be somebody else. There's 7 billion people on this earth. There's got to be somebody on this earth that knows more than me. There's got to be somebody on this earth who is better than me. There has to be somebody on this earth who's closer to Christ than me. There has to be somebody on this earth who's stronger than me, who's faster than me, who has more hair than me, who, 
I mean, you can apply anything into your life. So it doesn't really matter how perfect you are, how amazing you are, if you're not willing to step back and say, am I teachable? Is there room to improve? Can I grow more in this area? And so today as you leave, I want to challenge you. First and foremost, I can't forget what I feel like the Holy Spirit pressed upon us early on in this sermon before I even got to my sermon. To respect God, to respect the Holy Spirit, to respect our neighbors, to respect our brother and sister in Christ, to approach God, approach praying, approach reading your Bible, approach church with a higher level of respect. I want to challenge you also to remember every single day that there's going to be something in that day that can teach us. And to challenge you to wake up in the morning and ask yourself, am I being teachable today? And pray that God would help you to remain teachable. The third thing is, I want to challenge us to be more like the troublemaker and less like the rioters. To be more willing to step out and to step out of your comfort zones and share the gospel and less willing to crucify others for doing it. And to challenge us to be receptive to what God might be doing in our lives. Let us pray. Lord, you are king in this place. You are the authority of Chi Alpha. Lord, would you help us to give you the respect that you deserve, the respect that you've done more than enough to earn. Lord, will you help us to be teachable, to help us to recognize that no matter how perfect our life has been or how amazing things have been going on in our life, that there's areas of our life that we can still grow in that there's areas of our life that we can still improve on. And Lord, I ask that you would be the one who taught us and that you would be the one who improved us. Lord, help us to apply your teachings. Help us to apply scripture. Help us to apply what you tell us when we're praying to you and asking you for help. Help us to apply that to our lives. Help us to no longer allow what you teach us to go in one ear and out the other. And more than anything else, I guess, help us to give you the glory of it all. Because in the end, the things of this world are pointless if it wasn't for you and it wasn't in your will. Lord, we thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for what you will do in our lives. We thank you for the fact that we can come to Chi Alpha and we can throw off the burdens of the world and we can focus on something more important and bigger than ourselves. I thank you that you still teach us, even when we're trying to remain unteachable. That you still work in our lives, even when our pride is flaring up, even when we're being selfish, Lord, that you still are there and you're still working in our lives and you're still helping us to grow into better versions of ourselves, to be more like you. Amen.